0: Hello friends, Dr. Tim Jordan here. Thanks for stopping by this podcast, Raising Daughters. And if you're the kind of parent who wants to become or remain an influence in your daughter's life now throughout the teen years and early adulthood and beyond, then you are definitely in the right place. Every week or two, I put out a new podcast about some topic that has to do with kids, young people, uh, raising daughters. And today's topic is one of my soapboxes. We're going to talk today about success. And I think we've got sort of a messed up attitude or a messed up uh, vision of what success is these days. And so I want to talk about that with lots of stories. So stick with me. There's lots of really fun stories about people I'm sure you'll recognize. I remember years ago, years ago, probably 25 years ago, I found a story, and I don't remember where, but it was a story about some very wealthy people. It was 1923 and nine of the world's most successful financiers met in Chicago. All of them were rich beyond measure and they could do anything they wanted with their money, could have anything they wanted. And let me tell you who these people were, these nine successful uh, financiers. Charles Schwab, president of the largest steel company. Samuel Insull, president of the largest electric company. Howard Hobson, president of the largest gas company, Arthur Cutton, the great wheat speculator, Richard Whitney, the president of the New York Stock Exchange, Albert Fall, he was the secretary of the interior in president Harding's cabinet, Leon Frazier, president of the Bank of International Settlements, Jesse Livermore, the greatest bear on Wall Street at the time, and finally Ivar Kruger, the head of the world's greatest monopoly. That was 1923, and if you had looked at those guys, looked at their uh, resumes, you would have thought, wow, these are successful people. Let's fast forward 25 years to 1948 and see what became of these nine successful, quote-unquote, people. Charles Schwab died bankrupt and he lived on borrowed money for the last five years of his life. Samuel Insull, the president of the largest electric company, Died a fugitive from justice and penniless in a foreign country. Howard Hobson, the president of the largest gas company, was insane. Arthur Cutton, who was the great wheat speculator, died abroad insolvent. Richard Whitney, um, the president of the New York Stock Exchange, was released from Sing Sing Penitentiary. Albert Fall, the president of the Bank of International Settlements, was pardoned from prison so he could die at home broke. Leon Frazier, uh, died of suicide. And finally, Ivar Kruger, head of the world's greatest monopoly, also died of suicide. You probably wouldn't have predicted that ending for the world's nine most successful wealthy financiers in 1923, but 25 years later, that was their end result. So I think in this culture today, we value things like getting rich and being famous and getting your, your five minutes of fame and getting lots of views on YouTube or TikTok. We value things about looking good. I also read an article recently by a man named Kumar Mehta, where he's talking about exceptional people. And in his research, he he felt like exceptional kids uh, tended to grow up in homes where were pursuing excellence. Pushing the boundaries were always expected, not merely desired. He, he was kind of endorsing parents creating a culture of striving and competition inside the home. Promoting early specialization and being really competitive from an early age, even in small things. Everything was a competition in the homes of these people, he felt. He also pushed the idea that the kids need to choose early, choose their specialization, to focus narrowly. And to never worry, to never waver, to practice repetitively and often and, and to be pushed to decide what you should be before first figuring out who you were. So he was a proponent and his stories that he, he found were proponents of early specialization. For instance, Venus and Serena Williams, famous tennis players, they grew up in that kind of a culture. As a matter of fact... They're some of the most successful women tennis players of all time. And they were influenced by an environment at home that was created for them to excel. And their rise to the top started with their dad, Richard, who wrote a detailed 78-page plan for his daughter's ascension to the top of the tennis world. 78-page plan. He set those expectations early. The sisters were not even five years old when he wrote down his plan and this process for them. And he started the process... When they were less than five. You might think well they they became top tennis players. Well the same thing happened with Tiger Woods. Tiger Woods started swinging a golf club when he was 10 months of age. He was on national TV hitting golf balls with Bob Hope. I think it was the Tonight Show. He entered his first tournament at age 2. In the 10 and under division and he won. (laughs) His dad began mapping out his destiny when he was a little kid. He would drop him off at the golf course when when Tiger was four. He would stay there by himself all day playing with old guys and winning money. And his dad felt like he hadn't done his best with his three kids from his previous marriage. So he poured all of his energy into Tiger's golf career. Here's the kicker. When Tiger started Stanford University, his dad told everybody he'd be bigger than Gandhi, bigger than Nelson Mandela, and bigger than Buddha because he was the chosen one. No pressure there, right? And yes, Tiger got to the top of the golf world as a young man, and his life is a mess. His life has been a disaster. I hear all the time, all the time when I'm working with kids in my office, their parents telling me that they're trying to do anything they can to give their kids a leg up. They want their kids to have an edge. And so, for so many parents today, childhood has become a race to, the, to be the best, a race to the top. And back in the 50s, we talked a lot about keeping up with the, with the Joneses, which meant the family next door who got a new washing machine or a new appliance. Today, it's not about appliances. Everybody's got cool things, and they've got phones and devices. Today, it's about keeping up with the Joneses' children. And we noticed that the kid across the street, your, your son or daughter's friend, is going to three sports camps this summer and you haven't signed your your daughter up for anything. So all of a sudden, we're on the phone, signing our kids up because we've got to keep up or they're going to get behind. They won't be able to make a club team. They won't be able to make their their high school team. They won't be able to get a college scholarship and that kind of angst, can you feel it in my voice? That angst is so present in so many parents today because that's the vision of success. That's what our our, uh, parenting is about. It's about getting our kids to the top. We've also been pushing, as I've talked about previously in blogs and podcasts, this one narrow path to success where our kids have learned from a very young age that their job, their job is to get straight A's in school, get into a good high school, get straight A's, uh, be able to be accepted into a very top elite college so they can get this really cool job and then make a lot of money. Although that kind of path doesn't fit for most people. I ask young people when I see them in my counseling practice, what percentage of people aged 22 to 35 in the U.S. today have a four-year college degree? And most, most girls in high school and college who I ask will say things like 60%, 80%, 70%, even though the answer is about 30%. That 70% of people in this country do not have a four-year degree. I'm not saying your kids should not get a four-year degree. I'm just saying most people don't. That's not the path for most people today. But I think we're squishing a lot of kids on that path, and then they get plopped out, and they're not doing things for their reasons. There's a Gallup survey that was done a couple years ago. 200,000 workers in 150 countries were surveyed. 85% either were not engaged or were actively disengaged from their jobs. And I think a big part of that disengagement, that big part about people not liking their jobs, is about not making choices for those jobs based upon what was right for them, what fulfills them. It's interesting, too, that as as much as we pressure kids to know what college they're going to go to and what's your major, we ask them those questions, and, and kids are stressed by that in grade school these days. Grade school, middle school, they're stressed about college and finding their career path. Despite the fact that three fourths of United States college grads today go on to careers that are unrelated to their major. And they've, had, they've been pushing themselves to be really competent with a very narrow uh, tool set of, of with a single discipline, even though that's not really what the world's going to want from them. So I've worked with the kids for 30 years, I've listened a lot, I also read tons of articles. And there's several books I want to mention here because I got some of my thinking over the years from some of these some of these authors. Uh, the book "Range," which is a recent one by David Epstein, "The Talent Code" by Daniel Coyle, "Dark Dark Horse" by Todd Rose, and "The Element" by Sir Ken Robinson. Those are some of my favorite books when it comes to topics like this. And what I have found from reading those books, and what I also have found by talking to people all around the world asking them about their stories. How would you get to where you are? What I found and what those authors found was that early sampling, having a diverse experience in life, having a breadth of experience, uh, having interdisciplinary thinking, delaying your concentration, delaying your specialization, and having then the ability to integrate broadly, that that was the best way to prepare kids to be successful in life. Going through sampling periods, that's the best way to prepare kids. Modern work today demands a knowledge transfer. You've got to be able to apply what you know to lots of new situations, different domains. You have to be flexible. You have to be willing to keep learning because that's the way the world is, right? Moving freely from one category to another. You have to be good at problem solving, abstract thinking. Learners become better at applying their knowledge to a situation they've never seen before. And they're more creative because they've been able to sample broadly. Epstein, in in the book The Range, says that learning things is less important than learning about yourself. I tell kids that all the time. They need to to grow in their self-knowledge. And then you have to consider how much everybody tends to grow and evolve and discover new things about themselves over time. We get new mentors. We get new interests. We're fulfilled by different things along the way. We're always being told that young people today are going to have lots of jobs, way more than we did. But I think that, that they're going to have lots of jobs in the future, not because just because jobs and technology are changing a lot, but also because we change. Your son and your daughter are going to change, and because they change, their interests will change. I'm always encouraging young people to do experiments, and that's kind of hard for them. It's hard for them to, to kind of take detours, to do experiments and try different things because it feels more out of control. It feels more uncertain. Or it might go against the grain and the culture. You might disappoint people. People might be pissed at you. And they also worry, because they've been worrying about this their whole life because of our system, that they're going to get behind. And what I say to young people is, how can you be behind We don't even know where you're going. You're not behind. If you're taking detours and you're taking different paths and you're trying different things, you're not behind because you're learning a lot about yourself. The Dark Horse Project pointed out the value of, of a meandering path, a winding career path, if you will. And then focusing all along the way on, here's who I am at this moment. Here's what's motivating me now. Here's what I found i like to do now. Here's what I want to learn. Here's some opportunities that have crossed my path. Which one feels the best to me right now? After a while, I can switch if I find something better or if I find a better match. I'm better off being a short-term, pl- short-term planner than trying to decide what I'm going to do my whole life at this moment in time. I think young people's work preferences and their life preferences don't stay the same because they don't stay the same. The only certainty is change and uncertainty. And I think that if nothing else, the COVID pandemic has taught us a lot about handling uncertainty. Let me tell, tell you a couple of stories about people who uh, had a more me- meandering path and didn't have this straight line going from A to Z in one step path. One of them is Sebastian Younger. JUNGER. He was a, he's a nonfiction writer and a filmmaker and a filmmaker. But at the age of 80 at, at the age of 29 he was an arborist. And one day he was harnessed up in this upper canopy in in the forest when he slipped and his leg got torn open with a chainsaw. And so he he had to be hospitalized I think for a while and had some, some th- um, surgery or something but he got the idea at that time to write about dangerous jobs. Two months later, he was fishing in Massachusetts, uh, where he lived, and he got lost out at sea one day. All those experiences kind of um, motivate him in his two first books. The first one was The Perfect Storm. The second was Restrepo, both stories about people who were overcoming adversity. And this is what Sebastian Junger said about that, that cut that day was the best thing that could ever have happened to me. Virtually every good thing that's happened in my life can be traced back to a misfortune. You don't know what's good or bad when things happen. You have to wait to find out. I'm going to talk about in a minute about my dot theory. Great story, right? Here's the second one. Another author, Michael Crichton. Michael Crichton went to medical school. He started out in medicine because he was told by the adults around him that you can't make a living writing, even though that's what he really wanted to do. So he took the safe choice. He went into medicine, did pre-med, went to medical school, graduated. After a few years in his practice, he became disenchanted. He was bored and he decided, you know what, I'm going to start writing. So he used that medical background in a a couple of his books, including Jurassic Park and the TV series ER, which he wrote. I did a podcast recently called The Dot Theory, about how to find your, your calling, how to find your purpose, my dot theory is about being open to opportunities that cross your path, things that you feel drawn to, things that seem like fun, and you do those dots, those experiences, if you will, and then it leads to another dot, to another dot, and before long, a picture starts to emerge about, this is what my life is gonna be about, this is my purpose and my calling. So you end up following your urges and doing whatever it seems like would teach you something and allow you to be of service, and that those experiences becomes your training. And those diverse experiences accumulate. They add up. So we do what's needed. We, we do what we're, drawing, we're drawn to at the time. And the only plan is to do things that are interesting, maybe things that are needed at the moment. And at the end, and I've experienced this with, with several dot drawings, at the end, you can look back and go, I never thought it, it would lead to this. I never envisioned this ending. That's how life works for most people. We meander. We don't go A to Z. We go zigzag, zigzag, zigzag. I remember when I was in college, I didn't know what I wanted to do those first few years. I I knew I wanted to work with kids, didn't know how. So I thought maybe I want to be a teacher, maybe a pediatrician. I thought a little bit about acting. I'm not sure why. I had never done that in high school. But anyway, so my first two years, I took like the pre-med biology and the pre-med chemistry. I took a bunch of education classes. I was uh, in a in three different plays, and at the end of my sophomore year, I kind of needed to decide my major, right? and i I remember going a couple times a year into the office of of Brother Donahue, Brother John Donahue. and he was the pre-med advisor. He was a great guy. I, I would go in there feeling kind of discouraged, kind of like I don't and kind of confused. I always walked out of there feeling way better about myself. I went to him at the end of my sophomore year. You know, I told him, I'm not sure what to do. I'm thinking about being a teacher. I'm thinking about being a pediatrician. And he told me something that was became a really important piece of advice for me. He said, you know, you love kids. He said, you'd probably be a great teacher. You'd love it. you do a great job. But he said, you might at, at some point become a little bit bored with that. Might get a little bit, you know, whatever. So you might be able then to become a principal. He said, but there aren't too many other options beyond that. He said, if you go to, to, to medical school and you get the MD behind your name, in the long run, that will probably open up a lot more doors for you. He said, I'm not telling you what to do. I'm just saying you might want to think about making a choice that will keep open the most uh, options for your future. And that was one of the main reasons I, why I decided to go into pre-med. I chose that option because I thought it would give me the most promising range of options after, after I got it. I saw in one of those books that the word amateur is from the Latin word for a person who adores a particular activity. So I think most of us find our thing when We're when we're doing things that we're drawn to. We're amateurs, but it's not like we're some goofy, you know, thoughtless person. We're doing things and we're learning all the time. In the book Range by David Epstein, he revealed that many of the top performers in their fields were not, were not specialists from an early age. They were generalists who took the time to explore lots of different paths, and many of them delayed choosing a focus till they had found the right fit. He says they pinballed around. They didn't focus on the long term. Instead, they said, here's who I am right now. Here's the skills that I have. Here's what I want to learn. Here's the opportunities right in front of me right now. And they had the courage to grab those opportunities, or in my my verbiage, their dots. The culture is telling kids that the definition of success is, is to become wealthy and, be, and have high status by climbing the traditional institutional ladder. Know your destination, work hard, put your nose to the grindstone, stay the course. That's what my parents' generation learned. And that's what they kind of imparted to, to my generation. And someday, if you do that, you will, you will retire and then you can have fun. That was kind of like the mantra, right? Happiness was the reward for staying the course. You retire and then you can start doing your life. And that was like the one way, the one mold everybody climbs the ladder, you do the same thing as everybody else but just do it better. That was kind of like the path. That was the definition of success. I read I read an interesting book called The Talent Code a couple of years ago. And the and the author uh, Daniel Coyle had researched and looked at lots of people who were masters of their craft, artists and musicians and people like that. And one of the things that he found was that most masterpieces came not from quality, but from quantity. That the times when an artist like Michelangelo or Beethoven, the time when they were pumping out the most of their craft was when a masterpiece emerged. It wasn't sitting down and grinding it out and working for years on this one sculpture to try and make it perfect. That that was not how most masterpiece pieces came to be. And lots of artists and lots of writers and people like that, they'll start stories and they they get bored, they stop, they move on to another one. And when I think I've seen a lot of parents in my day, when they see that their daughters doing that, like if they're writing stories and not finishing them, they try and push them to finish. But the truth is. That's a great process. Move on to what you're interested in. You're learning every time you, you write anything or write a song or draw a painting. If you're, if you're bored halfway through a drawing or a painting and you move on to another one, it's okay. That's how the great masters did it. Todd Rose in the book, The Dark Horse, he said that the people who end up doing really well And by dark horse, he means people that you didn't expect them to do something great, and all of a sudden, wow, they're they did better than you thought. That those those people valued fulfillment, they valued uh, passion, having a sense of purpose, and being deeply engaged in what they did. That it was the pursuit of fulfillment that led them to success, not the other way around. That pursuing fulfillment and doing your passions—that's what was crucial for their success. The payoff for attaining excellence was that. The payoff was fulfillment versus being fulfilled at the end of your prescribed path and years of grinding it out. In order to to follow your passions and in order to follow things that fulfill you, you've got to know yourself. Thus, knowing yourself becomes more important than knowing the final destination. I tell young people all the time, focus on the journey, not the destination. Be open to dots. Recognize opportunities across your path that fits who you are and seize those opportunities. Knowing yourself is way more important than knowing where you're going and knowing your destination. You don't need to have a long term plan. At every step of the way and with each dot, you redefine who you are. And you also figure out what Todd Rose calls your micromotives. Those micromotives, things that motivate you, those shift over time because you're different over time. Christopher Conley is a psychologist. And he studied masters who were able to expand their careers over time. And he found that they had, all of them had broad training. They kept multiple career streams open, even as they pursued primary specialty. So again, it wasn't, what he didn't find was people just picking one thing early on, specializing early, and then pursuing just that thing. What he found was they tend to keep multiple paths open, and they learned along the way, and they shifted. They detoured. They did lots of different things. In order to do that, a couple things need to be in place. Number one, our kids have got to learn how to get quiet, go inward, and access their intuition. You can't trust your gut if you're not in tune with your gut. You can't follow your heart if you're not tuned into your heart. We've got to teach our, our daughters how to get quiet and be alone and to soul search and to reflect and things like that. They're also going to need to let go of expectations of other people, the shoulds in their life. They need to let go of what everybody else is doing. And instead, have a, a life view that says, Now what do I want to do? Now who am I? What do I have aptitude for? What do I have a passion for? What fulfills me? And that is going to change all along the way. Instead of being squished onto this this one path. Andre Agassi is a, a famous tennis player. He has an interesting story. Kind of like the Tiger Woods story. He was the youngest of four kids, and apparently the first three of his siblings failed to live up to their dad's dream of raising a tennis champion. So then he put all of his eggs in the Andre basket. A lot of pressure on Andre Agassi growing up. His dad was abusive. He forced him to practice for hour after hour. He dictated everything about his schedule. He, for- he forbade him to play other sports. There's this crushing awareness, Andre says, of being told, you're the last best hope of the Agassiz clan. No pressure there, right? Just like Tiger's dad. And so he did play tennis. He played very well. He got to the top of his of his uh, career ladder. But he was also rebelling a lot. He used to flout the game's unwritten rules. He wore a mohawk haircut. He wore earrings. He played in denim and pink shorts. He started dating Barbara Streisand, who was almost 30 years older than he was. And Andre Agassi says, having no choice, having no say about what I do or who I am, is making me crazy. Rebellion was the only thing I got to choose every day. Bucking authority and sending a message to my dad, thrashing against the lack of choice in my life. Don't do that to your kids. Don't do that to your kids. Autonomy is critical when it comes to kids being successful, finding their thing. All of us tend to get better at the things that we care about the most. We need autonomy. We need choice in what we pursue. That should start when your kids are little. It's, I found an interesting story in one of the books about Shinichi Suzuki. and He's the one who uh, they, uh, that the violin method is named after. It's interesting because uh, Sinichi Suzuki, he grew up around his dad's violin factory. His dad's factory made violins. He didn't start to play violin until till after he was 17 years of age. And he only started at 17 after being moved by a recording of Ave, Ave Maria. He learned by ear. He learned because he loved it. He was passionate about it. Later on in his life, he got lessons. And became a performer and then an educator. Today, I think that Suzuki method is used by little kids at five, and it's pretty grueling from what kids and parents tell me. That really wasn't the way he grew up. I I did a a blog or a podcast a while back reminding us not to value achievement over things like social-emotional learning. Don't value achievement over compassion and empathy. And when kids' parents value achievement more, those kids are more stressed and they don't do as well. That's, that's been studied. They just don't do as well. When your kids are into the violin, or they're into soccer, if they're into drawing, if they're into acting, all along the way, ask them why they love doing those activities. I had several girls in my office this week who I asked them, you know, uh, how they did in school, and they both kind of looked sheepish. And they, I said, well, you know, what kind of grades do you want to get in school? And they were like A's. And I said, well, why do you want A's? And both of them did. I've I've heard a million times, which is they kind of blushed, and they said, well, I, you know, I, uh, And they, they, they actually said to me, I don't know. I don't know. I want your kids to know why they love to do what they do. Acting, drawing. Playing volleyball, whatever it may be. And if they want A's, I want them to get A's because that's what they want, because for their reasons. Um, I told a story in a a recent podcast about one of our camp counselors, Marissa, who learned how to rock climb when she was in college. She wanted something different than getting wasted. And she said that what she liked the most about rock climbing, besides being out in nature, was she loved the teamwork aspect of it. dark horses, and people who are successful were not fulfilled by being excellent at something. They are fulfilled by being deeply engaged with their own things that they were doing for their reasons. So it's very, very important what we focus on and what we value. I'm encouraging each and every one of you who are listening to this podcast to teach kids to value their urges, their intuition, to follow their heart, and, and to also value fulfillment at every step of the way. And if something uh, doesn't seem fulfilling, if there's something that you're bored with and don't want to do, try something different. We need to value meandering. We need to value kids taking detours. That We need to value kids having a breadth of experience. Uh, doing experiments, experimentation. We need to value the wisdom of deep experience also. When kids get fully engaged in something because they chose it. And when they choose activities, they get more engaged. They're much more likely to experience those flow moments where they lose time. They get really into it. They learn the most then. They're the most passionate. But they also have the freedom to change course. Talk to your kids about what success means to them. Whether, whether it's getting good grades or scoring a goal or whatever it may be, or getting into a good college, ask them what it means to them. So it's not about you. And also make sure you, they see you modeling that. that. That success for you is not about, you know, being rich or being famous or, or having a bigger house or a bigger car or, or proving yourself all the time. Talk to them about what makes, what makes you tick, what fulfills you? Talk to them about why you love your job, which I hope you do. If you don't, show them the way by maybe making a detour, trying something different. I want them to see that modeled. That's often the best, the best uh, teaching for our kids. I hope this was valuable. Um, you might listen to this podcast with your kids, or if you've already listened to it, which you have, then maybe listen to it again with your kids, especially if they're in high school or beyond. And that might raise some conversations about success and about their life path and about what they're into and why they're into it. What are they passionate about? What fulfills them? What are they learning about themselves? What up to this point have they learned about themselves? When I get girls in my summer camps, especially the high school girls, we we do exercises and we do some journaling about things of that sort. To have them take stock of who am I, where am I, what have I learned about me along the way? All that is really valuable for your kids as they're they're meandering along their life path. I'll be back here in a week with another podcast. I appreciate you stopping by and passing these on to other people. If any of what I talked about today resonated, then go to my website at drtimjordan.com and order my book that came out about a year and a half ago called Letters from My Grandfather. Timeless wisdom for life worth living. Because I talk about things like this, and I wrote it for young adults. I wrote it for young people who are in high school and college to try and give them a sense of how do I find my way? How do I find my purpose and my calling? Uh, it's a short book, it's easy to read, um, but there's lots of goodies in there. That's at drtimjordan.com. I will see you back here in a week. Thanks so much for stopping by.